Welcome to the Sedaka Cast, where rabbis from two different generational backgrounds discuss social justice issues of the day. My name is Joe Blauberg, and with me, as always, is Rabbi Sammy Olin. So I can say Shabbat Shalom this morning because it's a Friday. Shabbat Shalom. And back with us is Rabbi Jack Paskoff. Always great to be here. Thanks. So our original planned show today was going to be about healthcare and Judaism, but we are recording on February 25th, 2022, and the world is in turmoil. And frankly, we just can't talk about anything other than the current news of the day, which is Russia in the Ukraine. But before we get to that conversation, I have something that I want to talk about. In Texas, three days ago, Texas Governor Greg Abbott said to ordered his attorney general to treat the uh, any parents that have transgender children and who go through you know gender affirming therapies such as puberty blockers or a whole host of other things to classify that as child abuse. I started this podcast with, with Jack and Sam here because I wanted to talk about Judaism and the search for justice and compassion. And there is no justice in persecuting minority youth. And there is no compassion about tearing children away from loving, supporting families and to put them in the foster care system with potentially abusive people who will, who will attempt to beat the trans out of them. This is a monstrous affront to human dignity, full stop. And I might not be, I'm not a rabbi. I am, I am just a, a layman. I am just a regular guy. But I am a Jew, and this is, an, this is anathema to everything that I feel Judaism stands for. And I cannot, if you are trans and you are listening, please know that you have our love. And if you are not and you want to support, please look up any number of trans rights organizations operating out of Texas, a few dollars will do. These people are fighting for their lives. And just to give a quick background as to why they're fighting for their, how much they're fighting for their lives, according to the Trevor Project, who does research on these matters, on their study on trans suicide or LGBT suicide rates uh, as of last year, 42% of LGBTQIA youth seriously consider attempting suicide in the past year, including more than half of transgender and non-binary youth, right? Trans and transgender and non-binary youth who reported having their pronouns respected by all the people they lived with attempted suicide rate at the uh, at half the rate of those who do not have their pronouns respected by anyone with whom they live and transgender and non-binary youth who were able to change their names and or gender marker on legal documents such as driver's license and birth rates birth certificates reported lower rates of attempted suicide this is an this is the preservation of life, to respect these people's identity and to give them the dignity and respect that they deserve as human beings. Full stop. Thank you uh, for that. And, and on a, I can't even say lighter note, but how are you gentlemen doing in these, I guess, dark times? Joe, if I can for a minute, just to follow up on your lead in. There is specifically a Jewish organization specifically dedicated to working with LGBTQIA individuals, uh, training, uh, advocacy. You can find them at Keshet Online, K-E-S-H-E-T, online, all one word, uh, and see some of the tremendous work they do and some of the life-saving work that they do. And I hope, like you, that some will choose to join in and uh, and be helpful. 
I will link that when the show goes up. The show will go up uh, the following, well, the Thursday night after we record it. You know, have that up on our Twitter and all social medias we have, which is just Twitter at the moment. But it's very important. This is a fight for the, the you know, against the persecution of a minority. And we owe it to ourselves to stand up to the state. We should we should know what this looks like as Jews. And Sam, uh, <laughs> Sam and I had a wonderful interview the other day um, at, 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 on, on a much lighter note with, with so fair Neil Yerman. And I can't imagine a more stark day and night episode than having a lighthearted, very good feeling interview with a brilliant, wonderful man uh, to the Ukraine, right? To the Russian things. So Sam, I believe you wanted to, you, you brought it up this morning on the, the morning of this podcast recording that you wanted to discuss Russia and, and Jack here agreed. And Jack here is also, I uh, believe, if you don't mind me saying this, torturing yourself a bit on, on last minute changes to your evening services to address this. I mean, cannot, right. I mean, our Jewish history um, is so tied with, uh, as Ashkenazi Jews, Jews at least, so tied with Ukraine and Russia and Belarus and you know, Latvia. Sam, do you have any opening thoughts you might want to go into on the history of Jews in this region? Sure. So um, I'm sitting in a community uh, that was primarily founded by Polish, Lithuanian, and Ukrainian Jews. And the reason why they chose to settle here is because the landscape looked like what they had left in Eastern Europe. And when I moved here, very amazingly, I met the synagogue president who said his family was from Ekaterinoslav, a small shtetl in what's now Ukraine. Since then, Ekaterinoslav has changed its name to Dnipro, which is in Ukraine. And that's where my family's from. In our Yolan family Facebook page, there was a picture of the street that was, that was put up in the last couple of days. And I can only imagine what it looks like today as uh, Russian forces are moving closer towards Kiev, which was the major city that Ekaterinoslav was a shtetl to. For those who don't know, uh, shtetls were uh, settlements of Jews and minorities who provided an economic function to a larger city. Oftentimes, these areas were unprotected and they were uh, shantily built uh, and they had commercial functions that, uh, that were outside the purview of guilds, which is how a lot of uh, middle, middle ages business operated. It's interesting how many of our families have similar stories. I always say when I was a kid growing up, it was all Russia. It was the days of the Soviet Union. We didn't distinguish. It wasn't until the collapse of the Soviet Union that I came to understand that my family came from shtetls that uh, were primarily in Belarus. Mm -hmm. uh, but the stories are the same. And the reasons they came, we can look at all the issues that Jews have confronted because of Russian leadership, whether they were in Russia or Ukraine or Belarus. Things haven't changed all that much. The tactics may have, but we went from the czars to the Soviet Union uh, and we saw tyrants. And while it may not be the Jews being targeted right now, we have to understand the personality of tyrants like Putin. And we need to understand what our obligations are to respond. So a very good point and um, a recurring conversation we'll have over the course of these, these discourses is, is this good for the Jews or bad for the Jews? And right now what's going on in Ukraine extends beyond that because there are humanitarian issues here. And as a Tzedaka cast podcast, you know, we are standing firmly on the shores of human rights and against the violations of them. At the same time, it's very difficult for the political state of Israel to endorse one side or the other being as so much of their defense is tied in with Russian security in the airspace of Syria and other diplomatic pressures. So I hope over the course of this conversation, we talk not only about the personal and what needs to be said about human rights, but also about the political quagmire 
of what it means to see the East and the West saber rattling over land space and how these really large government decisions affect personal nationality and identity questions. I think here's a place where weighing the particular against the universal, the particular against the humanitarian, might be a place where those of uh, those Jews in the more orthodox communities may lean more heavily towards the particular at this point. Uh, maybe looking more at how does this affect the Jews? Uh, a couple of people before the invasion were commenting about how cruel the Ukrainians were to Jews. And we know that as much as the Ukrainians hated the Nazis, there were also those who were complicit in turning Jews over to the Nazis. But I have to say that for me, this is an irrelevant issue at this point. Uh, I am deeply concerned about Israel. I'm deeply concerned about Russian influence in the area, uh, about how the countries there are being used as pawns as they often have been. So how do we balance out my need to worry about my people uh, against my people being all people? I think we've already commented on an earlier uh, podcast about Hillel's statement, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? Uh, and if I'm only for myself, what am I? What's the balance? Uh, I think that's a critical question in all of these discussions. It might, it might be important to take it back now historically and find out um, why are Jews even in the Far East? Well, I, I, I have, I have this, is, this is where Joe and his history degree wades in. Um, it's $70,000 of debt. This is what it pays for. So Nicholas II was Tsar of Russia in the 1790s. He, it, during that period, he creates a system called Russification. And Russification was meant to um, homogenize the culture of Russia. And homogenizing the culture of Russia included eliminating Jewish people from Russian centers. One of which there was the system of the Cantonist system where they would um, abduct young boys. Uh, there's a class of jobs known as the cappers who would take boys as young as eight years old from Jewish stedels and stick them in the army where they would have 23 year terms and they were not allowed to engage in Jewish practices if they lived to, to get to the barracks in the first place. They often didn't even make it that far. These were death marches. And the second part of that system was the Pale of Settlement created in 1791. And that pushed Jewish communities, Jewish artisans uh, out of the cities and put them into the frontier lands where the hope was again to isolate their cultural influence to limit their access to money and power and in case of attack on the empire the first people who would be attacked uh, on a border dispute would be the jews and that was the system the, the pale of settlement of 1791 and that creates the shtetl system largely right um and yes so I wanted to make sure that we did get that out because that is what we see now. Uh, these regions of the Ukraine and Belarus and, and whatnot that are involved are former shtetl lands, right? These were the these were the playgrounds of the Jews. The time, so. Well, I, I also wanted to make the point that even before that system, there was um, an exodus of Jews from more European countries because of the uh, the unfriendly atmosphere towards Jews. So the initial settlement of Jews in the shtetl lands before the Cantonist system uh, was as a way to preserve what they, what they could, which is a way of life before you had russification, before you had you know, the in early industrialization of the Russian empire lands. Um, you really had a fear of, um, of the, the royalty and the upcoming constitutions of the parliaments of Europe. Uh, Jews were not really so fond of, um, of the regular folk being as 
populism often targeted them. So the movement towards Far East, in a way, satisfied their need for security initially, and it turned on them. It's interesting as we look at this uh, in Western and Central Europe, as Jews, we had to deal with the Inquisition. We had to deal with the Crusades. We had to deal with uh, ghettoization. All of this was the reality from Spain and Portugal all the way across to Italy and Germany. So where do you go? Uh, our journey east, there's even a legend that says that Jews named Poland. Uh, Pauline, here I can rest. Now, I doubt that's true, but it does tell you something about how we understood the opportunities available and what those regions meant. What we soon discovered was that we were welcomed because of our commercial value and our economic value. And for little else, we were still and always the other. And this sets us up for the kinds of things that we were dealing with because of the Russian czars and others. So that question of, is this good for the Jews or bad for the Jews, oftentimes is a unique one whereby one ruler or dictator who could be bad for a large number of people could have a soft spot for a Jewish person, in which case the Jewish people becomes more associated with the courtly Jew experience of the Middle Ages rather than a robust protection of human rights and all people. That is going to lead what I think into a good conversation about the character of Vladimir Putin, who on a number of occasions had fond relationships with Jewish people. And so he looks to the Jewish people in the way that a courtly Jewish system would, almost at the expense of universal human rights. And it's interesting that Putin has used the terminology of denazification. Uh, does that make him a friend to the Jews? Uh, what is that telling us? Well, you have a Jewish president of Ukraine. Uh, so I'm not quite sure what denazification means. It sounds like a good excuse, a good rationale, uh, a good propaganda piece. But I find that there's little behind what his intentions are and what his actions are uh, beyond returning to his own personal glory days uh, with the KGB and the old Soviet Union. Uh, and this is something to be watchful for. This is a dangerous individual, and I don't believe that Ukraine is the end stop for his ambitions. In 2007, uh, during a, a conference, Vladimir Putin stated that the fall of the Soviet Union was the biggest, uh, biggest error in Russian history, foreign policy error, and that he wished to restore Soviet power, the power of the Soviet Union to Russia. Now, that's scary on its own. But the Jewish experience in Soviet Russia was not kind, particularly in the region where they're currently invading. Um, the Jew uh, Jewish people in that region were also victims of the Holodomor. Actually, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but this was a purge on dissidents and intellectuals and rural troublemakers. Uh, by Stalin. Well, it, it was also um, a massive famine. It was the result of collectivization of agricultural lands um, that produced not nearly the, the capacity of produce that would supply uh, the location with a, a feasible amount to live on. I think it was 50 million people who starved in, in that collectivization. So you can imagine the, the, the angst and anxiety, knowing that that Russia is trying to pull them back into a collectivist mindset, or or maybe a crony capitalist mindset, where bullying and um, you know theft is sanctioned by the government. It's important to realize in that context that when we look at dictators like Putin, they care little about the average person. 
They care little about the average citizen. Uh, they're willing to watch their people starve, which means that I'm terribly worried about the efficacy of economic sanctions. That remains to be seen, but we saw this going all the way back to the Torah with the Pharaoh and the plagues. People like this are so single-minded that they're willing to watch their people suffer, which means that there's not much that's going to stop them. I hope we don't have to be drawn into a military conflict. Well, I think that hope and being prepared to fight for that, that fear, which is a war, is something that deters ultimately the, the military advances of other, of other countries. First, I want to say it wasn't 50 million people, it was 3.5 million people who passed away in Holodomar. Um, I want to make sure that that number is corrected. But also, the, the idea that Roosevelt had in, in the early 1900s of speak softly and carry a big stick only really works if you're willing to use that stick. I think in the last number of years here in America, we've seen an inversion of human rights a questioning of whether the Western way and America as the world's police is in fact a force for good. I think the hollowing of that purpose makes us less willing to act in a way that responds to force with real force. I wanna put that on one side. And I also wanna say, Russia has scarred memories of conquering nations reaching close to its borders with Napoleon um, and the fateful retreat uh, from, um, uh, from Russian borders, which resulted in 90% of Napoleon's uh, troops lost in, in that march and retreat. And also with, with Nazi Germany reaching close to the borders, World War II is very unforgiving for Russia. And I, I think it's easy for us to take, to take for granted that NATO is a good arming of Western democracy, but I think the, the Far East is suspect of what that really means to include, to include Ukraine in NATO and the armaments that would go to Ukraine as a member of NATO. And I don't want to underplay that political reality towards governments of the Far East, specifically Putin. So, as much as we have experienced maybe a, a morally relative suck from the last 30 years of intellectualism, similarly, the fear of, of arming a border state towards, towards Russia, um, you know, that, that's, that's a serious step in a direction of military escalation. Um, and so I think in, Pu in Putin's mind where he says, this is a, a, you know, a, a preventative measure even though it's an invasion, as twisted logic as that might be, as pretzeled as his imagination is, I think he actually believes that. That's interesting because I, I took that as a lot of propaganda. Yes, lots of history, but I saw that as a rationalization and excuse and something to try to tell the world, right? We're not the aggressor. Look what's happening next door to us. Well, I think using the a familiar adage of the last, you know, 20 years of perspective is a reality, you know, his truth. And I think it's so often we stand atop what we like to view as, as absolute human rights, which makes us different from them. And it makes our application of Judaism an ethical practice that I find redeeming and beautiful. But to speak from that vantage point, you know, also, you, you need to be willing to go to war over certain things that are, that are morally reprehensible. And if you're going to call this out as such, we need to be carrying a, a stick and speaking, you know, softly as, as we can, but, but ready to use that stick. I don't disagree with you. I'm, uh, one of the things I'm aware of is that in our generational difference, uh, I remember the last time we had mandatory conscription in this country uh, during the Vietnam era. I remember when it ended and I was part of the first cohort uh, that had to register for the draft 
uh, again, once draft registration was restored in, in this country. Uh, a year or two later, I remember the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. I was in college at the time, and I remember sitting around with a bunch of people that night saying, this is it, this is, we're, we're gonna be in fighting in Afghanistan within the year. And there wasn't going to be a college exemption at that point. Uh, what stopped the Russians then? I don't know. What's going to stop them now? I don't know, like you, I agree that we have to be ready to use it, but I have to tell you, at my age, at my son's age, we're not likely to be the ones fighting. Right. So I'm also- Well, I, I think- Go ahead, please. I think the fear is that this, this you know, metastasizes and snowballs into something larger, not just with Russia, but maybe China looks at Taiwan and says, hey, the Americas, the Western world didn't do anything to defend Ukraine. What's to say we just take over the largest silicon factories in Taiwan? And from there, you know, we'll have the South China Sea, all the resources there. Uh, and, and let's not forget that part of the hesitancy and reluctance of the Western world to kick Russia out of SWIFT, the, inter, the interbanking um, program, is that Russia supplies most of Europe with gas. There are spider webs of pipelines that feed Rosneft and, uh, and Russian gas towards everywhere from England, Germany, you know, France. These are, these are areas that are, that are resource dependent on Russia. And also over the last 10 to 15 years, Russia's been amassing its central bank holdings, gold over over T-bills, treasury bills, and dollar-denominated assets. So if in the event of a war, as we saw for a brief clip Thursday morning, the price of gold skyrockets, Russia's banks are very well capitalized compared to other European countries. I don't think that this is something that was decided or determined overnight to invade Ukraine by Russia. I think this has been um, you know, part of a long plan and I don't think it stops here. I think we should really be looking at into the future what this says about Western hegemony and those values that we like to ingratiate our, our followers with, the values of human rights. If Judaism is to be a religion about human rights, then that should be something that, that is universal or at least worldly. And that's, that's the conundrum because the, the reality of war is, is painful. And it asks inappropriate sacrifices of certain demographics and age groups. But at the same time, have, it's the only price to pay for lost, lofty goals and aspirations in one's own religion and practice. So I, I would like to bring up maybe some numbers here while we still have time about Ukraine. Uh, why is the Ukraine a tug of war of imperial interests, to put it in an unfriendly way? Right, showing, showing my cards, my political cards a little bit. According to the Ukrainian government themselves, they are seventh mm. in the place, uh, seventh place in the world in iron extraction, eighth place in the world in uh, manganese, sixth place in the world in titanium extraction, and second in uh, second place in Europe after Russia for titanium. Right after that, you only have China, Australia, Canada, and Mozambique. All of China is a close ally of Russia as of a week ago, and uh, Mozambique is a uh, the site of a proxy war between Eastern and Western armies, both paying their own um, private private extraction teams for those resources. Uh, so the Ukraine is ridiculous uh, coal. By the way, it has a large coal. Mm deposits, which, you know, uh, you could say what you want about coal being sort of the fuel of yesterday, but it, it still functions, it's still valuable. And so Ukraine is a massive territory with a lot of natural wealth. 
and right. and also no longer a nuclear arsenal, right? At one point after it was formerly a store place for nuclear weapons of the uh, Soviet Union, when the Soviet Union broke up and Ukraine had its independence. In 1993, Ukraine had the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world. They gave that up for a potentially uh, membership in NATO, uh, which they never got. So well, I think that I think part of the treaty there was that uh, Ukraine wouldn't be armed by Western by Western. Well, that's so I am unfamiliar I, with the exact. Yeah. Thing. So 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 I think that that's part. Of, I mean, that's part of the tug of war is that you have an incredibly resource rich land that seems to be sandwiched between two relative empires, whether it's, you know, the Euro denominated countries and, you know, the ruble, you know, the gold, the old money. Um, you know, style governments, dictatorships, um, you have China and Russia, you know, China is now a world power, and they buried the story of Russian invasion of Ukraine on page three of their state run news. I, you know, I think that this is a concerted effort to try to grab resources. And you're looking at people who are caught in the crosshairs, and not just people from a particular standpoint, a legendary Jewish, you know, a legendary Jewish environment. The birthplace of the Baal Shem Tov, my family's ancestral shtetl, you know, Rabbi Jack's Pale Settlement family. This is um, this is the human cost of a resource squabble between uh, between countries and empires, which the future holds more of. This is what happens when you pass post peak resource and you you fight over, you know, over the borderlands. It's very sad, and I expect uh, I expect that we'll experience more more testing of the Western world as these, you know, as these relative sphere of influences crumble towards their, towards their, their peripheries. I'd like to switch gears just a little bit because I'd like to bring some Jewish values. And we've discussed the history uh, and the current manifestations, but I would like to bring some, some Jewish values into this conversation. Rabbi Yolan, see how you respond to this. Uh, in particular, there's uh, one of the things I often say is Jews are taught to seek peace and pursue peace, but we're not pacifists. Uh, meaning that there are times we will fight and there are actually wars that we are commanded to engage in. In this case, I'm particularly interested in the law of the pursuer, uh, which basically says that uh, if person A is pursuing person B, with the intent of harming person B, assuming person that person B is innocent, then we as bystanders have an obligation to intervene using the least amount of force necessary to stop this harm from being done. Uh, this is not something optional for us. Uh, this is something that as Jews, we need to engage in. It's a conversation we need to have. I think we can agree who's the pursuer and who's the pursued, uh, despite the propaganda coming from Putin. And I think we have an obligation to support the response. So the, um, you know, taking your value and, and applying what I would like to view as Israeli politics to it, the current discussion between Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and Foreign Minister Yair Lapid is do we give Ukraine the same style of iron dome defense that we use to protect ourselves from the indiscriminate rockets coming from Gaza. As you can imagine, this is not a unanimous answer. Um, Naftali Bennett is, is reluctant to, um, to name Russia entirely as at fault, partially because only about a week ago, Russia shut down the air communications over Israeli airspace, and Russia ostensibly owns Syria, which is a which is a, a buffer between the unfriendly Hamas, um, you know, territories in in the Middle East and um, and the IDF. Um, Yair Lapid, who is uh, a lot more cognizant of uh, of what I'd say universal rights, um, absolutely thinks that 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 Israel needs to stand with Ukraine and should. Uh, my Twitter feed, my Instagram feed is is blowing up with uh, with Israelis who absolutely are throwing their lot with Ukraine, and they have they have memories of 
how Mother Russia wasn't so motherly. I, I do want to say that uh, Russia also is one of the only places that you can travel to from Israel without a passport. So there are very complicated diplomatic um, you know, issues here that I don't, you know, I, I don't necessarily see the same Talmudic discussion of if someone's coming to attack you, you can rise and, and attack them first. Um, but I think what's most clear when it comes to Jewish values, especially in wartime, is that you are not allowed to cut down fruit-bearing trees. You're not allowed to salt the earth. You're not allowed to do things that would forever make it impossible for a country or a people to, uh, to rejuvenate the land post-war, which the assumption is the war will eventually end. If we start to see that, if we start to see you know, the failure for Russia to, to control Chernobyl, the, you know, the nuclear waste of, uh, of that uh, tragedy, that would be where I, where I say you know, we should start talking about military encounters. Um, but Israel's in a really unique position as the, the rope tugging between the East and the West. Aspirationally, we hope that Israel can barter some sort of a negotiation, um, but also we should be concerned that Israel might be torn apart by, um, by, its, by its affinity towards commerce in, in, the far, in the far East and its understandable loyalty towards us in America and the West. I think this is a place where you and I view things pretty differently. Um, I, again, I'm not promoting military responses, and I do emphasize the point that the law of the pursuer says that the minimal amount of force necessary to stop the harm from, from being done. Uh, in that region of the world, if we could look at the Holocaust, I'm keenly aware of how Jews cried out to the world for help and it never came. Uh, I'm keenly aware that Chamberlain and others thought they had won peace for our time by sacrificing a piece of what was then Czechoslovakia to the Nazis. I am cautious about World War II and Holocaust comparisons, but I think it's very apt here. And I think we need to pay attention. Uh, I'm a lover of Israel. Uh, but I do want to distinguish sometimes between Jewish values and Israeli self-interest, uh, especially where Israeli self-interest is Jewish self-interest. Having that, that Jewish homeland to me should be important to all Jews. Um, but how can we not engage in the bigger area of Jewish values uh, even if there might be something to be lost, especially if that loss is economic. Well, I, I think that that's a conversation political leaders need to have to their citizens when they're very cold in the winter because they don't have gas to warm their homes. And I think that with a compelling enough speech, you can get people to give up their standard and quality of life, but it has to be for a really good and meaningful reason. Uh, I think the Holocaust is reason enough for Jews to sacrifice to save lives. That's you know part of our our ethical DNA. But I think as you get farther and farther away from your own ethnic background and religious background to the more nebulous, this is just done so that a person far away can live who you might not even know. I think that's a tougher uh, speech to make. So I, I just want to clarify with you because I I hear you um, making some analogies between the Holocaust and what could be going on in, in the East right now. But you also seem to be adamant that this is, should not ever escalate towards a military operation or shouldn't be war. So how do you reconcile those, you know, the, you know, the empathy that you have that this could potentially be a Holocaust type situation with the insistence that this shouldn't graduate to, towards a military style uh, conflagration. I'm not saying that we should definitely not go to a military uh, response. I am mindful though that I'm not going to serve. My children are unlikely to serve. I'm very cautious when people sitting in international capitals are making decisions about the young people of their own countries and the sacrifices that they're being asked to make. Uh, I don't necessarily believe that economic sanctions 
are going to be helpful. Uh, but I think that taking this approach is wise. If anything, I wish we had started a little bit earlier in the American response and not waited for the actual strikes on Ukraine. Uh, but I think we need to be measured in the response, but willing to go to that point if necessary uh, of military engagement. Um, so thank you for the opportunity to clarify that. Isn't there an obligation? Isn't there a rule about hostages? You know, uh, in Judaism, right? Isn't there the rule that you have to right up until three times, right? That you have to do everything you can to to save the life of another, just to, to rescue them. The people of Ukraine are caught in a war zone, right? They are the victim of the East and the West tugging at one another for resources, for political power, for the recapture of old glory. Don't we owe it to our valley, to our to, we are we are what we are commanded to do, to do what we can to assist these people, whatever that may be, right? Where is the limit to that? Or am I off base? Am I have I read this wrong? It's an interesting challenge here, because as much as we're commanded to respond when there is a pursuer and pursued. There's also a debate about to what extent do I need to put my own life in jeopardy? It's not a matter of, well, that person's life is worth so much that I need to jump in no matter what to intervene. Uh, so I, I do wanna throw that in there. We as Jews tend to say, oh, look at the Hasidim Motelim, look at the righteous Gentiles. And why didn't more people respond during the Holocaust? to take our side, and yet within Jewish law, there is this question. Uh, but I think we see a bigger picture here. And in part, I think the Holocaust taught us to see that. Appeasement is not a policy. Uh, the, the old line about first they came for this one, um, and then they came for that one. Uh, I think we can see to a certain extent where this might be headed. Uh, now it's Ukraine. When's it going to be Belarus? When's it going to be the Baltic states? Uh, so it, it's not really a clear case of what do we risk to protect those who are endangered in a war zone? How do we protect them? What's my obligation to myself? How do I balance those based on Jewish law, based on history? So I don't think we can say there's a clear cut response here. Absolutely. Uh, that's a very well and succinct answer to that question. And I would even say that Belarus is already uh, being run by a Russian puppet. So I, I don't, you know, I don't distinguish between that nation and the greater Russia. Uh, I, I'm fearful for, um, for human rights in that whole corner of the world. I, I think that they've looked at the capitalist model and they've done their best to try to undermine it. And they're not interested in, uh, in the free market capitalism and the, human rights protections that that we in the West enjoy. Um, and I, I think that there's a coordinated policy to try to destabilize uh, what human rights values we have here. I think you could look at the way that the um, Chinese ambassador and the American uh, the American foreign policy diplomat argued in in Alaska a couple months ago and uh, the Chinese representative called out American, injustices and and mentioned about how terribly we treat our African-American citizens um, as a way to rebuke us when we commented that a million Uyghurs are in detention camps. I don't think that these are equivalents. I think that that's a cop-out. I, I think that there are there's right, there's wrong, there's human rights, there's values. The West is not the East. Uh, we, we do our best to support a robust democracy and, and freedoms and rights for all people. We don't always get it right, but I think there's a marked difference between power for power's sake and rights that all people enjoy based on an American system of civil liberties. Um, and I think that when it comes to it, that's something that I'm willing to fight for. I don't see the time for fighting just yet. Thank God. I think we still need to work on 
on giving those speeches to make people proud of, of who they are and where they come from. Uh, and I think that Judaism, with such a high regard to the individual and individual rights, should do that. And it shouldn't sacrifice Israeli self-interest to do that. I think, if anything, it should embolden what the biblical promise of Israel is, which is a beacon of light onto the other nations. I maybe switch gears here a little bit. I wanted to talk about the importance of Ukraine to Judaism, to Jewish people. The city of Uman. Can you guys, can either of you guys please explain to the audience the importance of the city of Uman? Yeah, there's a, um, Uman is where uh, the, the Breslov Hasidism movement really was created by Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. And this was a man who went up against the highfalutin Talmudic academies of Lithuania. Uh, he argued against the pill pull of the, uh, of the Talmudic study, the very intellectual overwrought study of, of the analysis of Jewish texts, the Talmud being, um, being the largest compository of Jewish law. And what Rabbi Nachman of Breslov did was he universalized this and said, you know what, you can be a simple peasant out in the field, and that could be your prayer. He created a mystical stream of Judaism that has endured to this day and created a number of Hasidic dynasties of which people oftentimes mistake for authentic Jews. There is no such thing as an authentic Jew. We come in all sizes and shapes, but that is the birthplace of Hasidism. And so there's a boutique industry in Ukraine to do research about families' histories. As I mentioned, my family's Facebook group was from uh, this area, a shtetl outside of Kiev, and also to have travel agencies that bring Israelis and, and Hasidism um, back from the diaspora, from B'nai Brak, from uh, Crown Heights, all the way to Uman once a year to celebrate the art site of their rabbi, Rabbi um, Nachman of Breslov, Nana Nachman. I want to disparage Rab Nachman, uh, maybe to disparage some of his followers. He, he has become a cult-like figure. Hmm. Uh, obviously dead for a very long time. If you drive around Israel, you will see his name all over in graffiti. Mm. Uh, he was known to have been a miracle worker. And I do worry sometimes that in some Hasidic circles, uh, we come very close to worshiping some of these individuals like Reb Nachman, like Menachem Mendel Schneerson. So I want to honor his teachings and still express that caution as to how he's treated in Hasidic life and Jewish life uh, in many sections of Israel today. Uh, so again, just distinguishing between the two, what he taught. Uh, and I think there's a very apt piece uh, of his teaching that many young people know, not many not so young people anymore know, because it's been popularized in a song. Uh, the world is a very narrow bridge, but the important thing is not to be afraid. I bring up Uman and Rabbi Nachman because as of February 24th, 2022, the day before we have recorded this, Uman was uh, shelled by the Russians, where several, according to Newsweek, several hundred people have been killed in the shelling of Uman. There was the uh, Hasidic morning prayers were interrupted. Uh, people had to flee for their lives. I wanted to bring that up because and who Rabbi Nachman was and why there are these Jews in Uman. To bring it back to the personal, Jews inhabit this world. Uh, these are important sites. And there are, there's the great line of continuity of Judaism, right? I mean, am I wrong to say so? Allow, um, allow me to speak out of the turn. 
is the great line of continuity of Judaism. And well, I want to say that there's a big teaching here, which is that the uh, the old world's landscape is marked by many famous Jewish historical incidents, and not all of them are so well remembered as to memorialize. I think because of the recency in the history of Rabbi Nachman, because of the success of his followers, we have a strong historical pull and association. And I say we loosely, I've never been to Uman. You know, I, I quote Rabbi Nachman once in a while, his stories are nice. They give you that warm tingly feeling in your stomach, but I'm not a devout follower of Breslov Hasidism. So because of his pull and his charisma and the charisma of his followers, I mean, the Chabad movement was one of the first ultra-Orthodox movements to embrace the use of technology and its Kerouf and its outreach. I think it's, it's generated a lot of sensationalism and it's almost like a religious spring break experience, like a Jewish Rossbringer for those, wild, wild uh, for times, those who are familiar those with Jewish them. spring breaks, uh, right? <laughs> Well, you, you see the videos, you know, on, on Jewish breaking news and TikTok of, you know, of whole, uh, whole stadiums breaking under the weight of, of people singing Nigudim. And it, it's amazing uh, to have this old world celebration still at home in modernity. And it happens only in few places. And it just so happens that Ukraine is one of those places that it happens. But if you think that you can go to Spain and, and not see important cities like Cordoba, where Rambam, you know, was born and lived, you know, those are cities of equal merit, historically and intellectually. And there are no major pilgrimages there, which have hundreds of thousands of people. Um, the, the old world landscape is dotted with these incredibly meaningful and incredibly tragic experiences. And it's up to Jewish memory to commemorate them and sensationalize them so that we still have a you know, a spring break to go on, so to speak. Now, I, I don't want to like, um, you know, say that Uman's not important. Um, you know, it sure wasn't that important to my family's history, uh, but it doesn't, you know, it, it serves a function, you know, it's, yeah. I am, I am also not Hasidic. Uh, I, I know this is an audio format. I think if visually you could quite see, uh, I, I am not, uh, none of us here are. It was just brought to my attention because yesterday this was shelled and they killed hundreds of people. I, you know, I feel that way about when I read stories and I read in these, you know, old Hasidic tales or other tales, you know, the rabbi of Chernobyl. And I think to myself, wow, I, I know Chernobyl. You know, that was the site of, a, of an incredible disaster of a, of a nuclear waste site. And then you realize that there was a whole history there, a Jewish history before it made its, its mark on the world in such a disaster. I would also like to point out that yesterday, uh, as of recording, Chernobyl is captured by the Russians. But this is what it means to be Jewish, is to hear stories of far off towns that once had a repository of, of Jewish history and teachings and, and established customs and institutions, and, um, and then to know that it's disappeared. And it, it's like, you know, one of the things that I found as working as a rabbi is that when people are close to the end of their life, they're willing to give you their most meaningful stories almost for pennies on the dollar. And I find that the same is true for cities, cities that have long histories of incredible things. When they're faced with destruction, they give out some of the most meaningful things um, because of the duress, whether it's artifacts that have been there for hundreds of thousands of years, um, whether it's, uh, it's individual scholars, the pinnacle, the high watermark of their culture, but when you're surrounded and under siege, as the Talmud says, when Jerusalem's under siege, it's like an olive and only under intense pressure does it give off its olive oil, its lighting capacity. There's a, um, there's a teaching that I, uh, I wrote a, a sermon for the high holidays called What If There's a War? And in it, I mentioned the possibility of an international war. It was not a popular sermon, but reading back on it, it was slightly prophetic. And in that sermon, I spoke about a story in the Talmud of a bira deleket, which is a castle that's lit up. And the story goes that there, there's a, a, 
a man walking on the road and he turns and he sees a castle on fire. And he says, who is the owner of this castle? And God's voice comes out and says, I'm the owner. And if that's not a parallel of what we're experiencing in today's world, the world is on fire. Who could possibly be the owner? Well, God is. Rashi changes the meaning of this story a little bit. And he doesn't say it's a castle on fire. He says it's a castle lit up. Because that light is what's to us to illuminate the reality that this world needs masters. It needs us to take responsibility. And it calls us to take responsibility of the fires that are waging. I want to, if we're getting close to ending, I don't think there's any more appropriate way to end a discussion like this as with a prayer. You know, I've only been a pulpit rabbi for so long. I really am going to lean on my esteemed colleague, Rabbi Jack, uh, to lead us in a prayer because all this stuff is new and very hard. You know, it's, it's very hard. And I, I appreciate his wisdom and guidance in, in some of these more particular Jewish value conversations. It's interesting. I posted something on Facebook yesterday saying sometimes prayer seems impotent. One of my colleagues responded by saying, if by prayer you mean hope, what can we legitimately pray for at a time like this? Uh, We don't expect God to upset the course of human free choice. We know that's not likely to happen and we may not want it to happen. One of the prayers that comes to mind for me is actually a prayer written by Mark Twain called the War Prayer. It's a very short piece, you can find it online. Uh, He knew it was so radical that he didn't even allow it to be published in his lifetime because he insisted that people who are praying for victory understand what's happening on the other side and even on their own side. That war really is which side is going to have more orphans? Which side is going to have more widows? Which side is going to have more bloodshed? And he cautioned us against prayers for victory. And so we pray for justice. We pray for wisdom. We pray for saner minds. And we pray for peace. And we also remember that we're taught to pursue peace not to admire it, not to praise it, but we have our obligations. To the extent we can, I pray that we'll have the strength, the courage, and the wisdom to intervene as necessary, that our leaders will guide us towards justice, and that we will once again achieve wholeness, stability, and peace in the world. I can't think of anything that would top that ending to to this, our first discussion of foreign affairs and war. Again, I would, as always, I would like to thank Rabbi Sam and Rabbi Jack for joining me um, for this conversation. If you would like to ask Rabbi Jack or Rabbi Sam a question, our Email is sedukacastmail at gmail.com. You can reach out to us at Twitter at the Sedukacast. Next week, we will go back to our planned uh, planned schedule. We will finally uh, talk about uh, healthcare and Judaism, provided that there is a next week. To I would like to also end this conversation. I don't want to just sit here and talk and say this is just what we should do and this is how we are and and this. I want to give people the tools maybe to do a little something. So there are, my wife pointed out, the Misbacha Chabad of Odessa is currently um, directly in the field for uh, trying to help Jews that cannot flee 
the violence right now, orphans, single mothers, the homeless, whomever. And so if you would like to give to them, I know the Chabad is not uh, often on friendly terms with reformed Jews, but we're all in this together. Um, I know Jack has uh, given me the link to the World Union for Progressive Judaism has a Ukrainian crisis fund currently. Um, again, I know not everybody has the means to donate, but if you do, please do, because the only difference between the Jews over there and the Jews right here is the accident and good fortune of birth. That could be us one day. It could be us right now. Uh, they're all we're all one people and they really could use a hand so please if you can find it in your heart uh, and you can afford it give something uh, to help these people in this horrible time next week back to happier matters at least well u.s healthcare, so not that happy but but this is the world we live in so thank you so much again and have a good night